Welcome back to This Film Not Rated, a branch of the Music City Drive-In Podcast Network. I'm Curtis. And I'm Eric. And we are here to talk about the movies we saw this week with full spoilers and a twist on the podcast formula. On the show, there are winners and losers, and the loser is the one with the most points, and you can get points in one of two ways. You can either state an opinion as fact, like uh, the 70s horror is the best horror to watch. Or you can give a... Or you can give a subjective opinion like, uh, the 70 Horrors is my favorite horror to watch. And you can either take the point or take 60 seconds to give objective reasoning for your subjective opinion. Like, it is my favorite because factually I enjoy the uh, slow pacing and, and the atmosphere that you get from 70s horror. That it builds up the uh, paranoia and the fear of, uh, of an inside threat as opposed to, uh, to an outside threat, which is different from what you would get from later horror. So, the big question. Eric, what did you watch this week? The beginning of my planned summer splash in which at least once a week I watch one or two movies that are action blockbusters that include some form of water-based sort of set piece or entertainment. Okay. I was kind of hoping to start this earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was, you know, one place uh, before midnight takes place in Greece. Yeah. So that episode, I was kind of hoping to kick things off, but then I didn't really have an installment for last week. Um, so this week, I'm looking at the Goonies, mm-hmm. which boy do I have so much to say about the Goonies mm-hmm. and the Mask of Zorro. Because on this podcast, we watch what we enjoy for the week and talk about it. Just because we've talked about The Mask of Zorro before does not mean it's not going to be relevant to talk about again. Highlander, which does have a water-based set piece. Okay. And I watched Sherlock Holmes 2009. Okay. Which is going to be really hard for me to talk about without getting buzzed. I I, I can understand that. Yeah. And I guess uh, for me, I watched... uh, a movie called uh, Death Dream and uh, Hellraiser. My first time watching Hellraiser. Written and directed, I think, by Clive Barker, correct? I think mm-hmm. so. Yes. So, I'm finally going to get to talk about a movie that I have <laughs> wanted to talk about with the world for a year and a half. Because I don't understand some things. Oh, I th- oh, and I know which movie this is. Go ahead and say it, though. You might. I don't think I've seen this movie, if it's the movie that I'm thinking It's about. The Goonies. It's The Goonies. That, that's what I thought. I have not seen this movie yet, personally. So, I am going to use a word that is neither good or bad. Okay. Some people can enjoy things that are bizarre. Some people cannot enjoy things that are bizarre. Right. So, I labeled my note list for this, Goonies, Bizarre. I am going to ask questions. I do not want answers. The opening. The villain pretends to have killed himself so that a police officer comes close so that he can hit him with a pipe. Why not just walk out with a pipe and hit the police officer? How did he get past the other police officers? When we are introduced to all of the main characters, the lead who is a blonde with glasses is introduced with her head in a bucket. She then pulls her head out of the bucket to take a very deep breath as if she's been holding her head under this bucket of water while it's raining for a very long time. 
This is never referenced again. I don't know what ha The character Mouth, played by Corey Feldman, comes through the front door of his own free will and introduces the characters. And yet Chunk, who wants to come through the back gate, has to do the truffle shuffle because they won't open the back gate unless he comes through. And yet the other character came through the front. Did Data make the gate contraption? We don't know. Why do they have this contraption? Creating a device, setting up a trap, never becomes a functional set piece. The mom is walking a housekeeper through the house and asks Mouth, Corey Feldman, to translate for her. And it's a set piece meant to be comedic, where he's not telling her really what the mom is saying. He's saying all these horrible things about the house to scare. What the mom is doing is taking a housekeeper and introducing her to the house that is being taken away from them to be destroyed that weekend. The next day, in fact. The mom actually says, quote, I want it spotless when they tear it down. She's paying money to have someone clean her house so that it can be destroyed. And you think, so is this like a a show, I'll show you kind of thing? Like like a, a, a protest of sorts to what's going on? Is it that far out of their control? Sean Astin leans close to a painting that clearly Corey Feldman's character is behind. And he leans in closer and closer and Corey Feldman is talking through a hole in the mouth of a character in the painting. And then he sticks his tongue out through the hole and Sean Astin says, Aha! Gotcha! As if he wasn't totally sure what was going on until then. Josh Brolin and Data keep correcting Mike's words when he's upset. Uh, so Mike is Sean Astin. Mm. He keeps saying, like, the wrong word, and they say, you know, it's this word. And he says, that's what I said. And yet, they keep... Sean Astin starts referring to the treasure they're hunting as the rich stuff. Nobody ever corrects him to say treasure. And then it never gets brought up again. Chunk notes, I don't want to go on any more of your crazy Goonie adventures. Mouth had already called them the Goonies. We need to have a Goonie weekend earlier. They've had multiple adventures like this one. After Josh Brolin hugs uh, Sean Astin to comfort him over being sad about losing their house, he walks away and Sean Astin's feet are dragging along the floor. Josh Brolin is carrying him by his head. They trap Josh Brolin and run out of the house to start their adventure by taking a piece of exercise equipment that is essentially springs in between two hand things and they wrap these springs around him. These incredibly flexible springs, they, they just wrap it around him in a chair. It is so easy for him to flex out that that's where you get to start into the cartoon logic okay and i have a whole separate section for cartoon logic when the mom comes home he is laying on his back after struggling so hard to get out of the chair and not being able to get out of these really flexible springs and the mom bends over and he says mom you got to stop them the kids are and she covers his mouth and says you need to exercise better and then ignores him asking about his brother and then it's not until after he gets free you cut to the outside of the house he's running away you hear the mom from inside yell you better have him home by dark or something like that what is going on with this mother uh josh brolin after riding a bicycle after the other kids who all rode their bicycles is more out of breath than his asthmatic brother he then has another weird issue of awkward hand strength mm -hmm. where he puts his hand on the side of a car his supposed, like, girlfriend or girl of interest asks if Josh Brolin wants a ride. Because this high school guy is like, oh, I don't like that she's flirting with him. He grabs Josh Brolin's hand, drives with Josh Brolin on the bike, and Josh Brolin is not able to get his hand out from under the hand of the other high school boy. He's like, stop it, stop it! And they escalate to, like, multiple miles per hour, and then the guy lets him go, and then that causes him to run off the road. The character who had to do the truffle truffle is the one who can't stop talking around danger. Not the character Mouth, nicknamed for his inability to stop talking. Chunk fights a corpse from falling on top of him and it looks like they discovered in editing that this could have been like a distraction to keep the villains from finding wherever all the other characters are going, mm -hmm. but it doesn't actually distract them and has no consequence. 
data Relight releases a gadget that he has which is he lights headlights he aims them at everybody and starts to walk backwards and for a second you're like okay so he's gonna trip on something okay but instead the lights just run out of battery and he goes oops should have had a bigger, better battery and then they never get brought up again is your brain still together are we good there is one room they run into where there are pipes hanging that are dripping. They grab the pipes and move them. This causes a water fountain at a nearby tennis field to shoot up and down in the ground. It causes not the faucet of a shower, but the knobs to turn the shower on and off to bust into the wall and pull away. Okay, And then it causes a separate toilet that we're not totally sure is related to explode. So the town well has water spilling into it, but there's no rain. How does this town not know that there's a secret passage to the local well that everybody goes to? The entire climax of the movie is based around, uh, you walk the plank, jump in the water. I'll throw you in the water. I'll throw me in the water. I'll jump in the water to get it away. Everyone is, keeps dropping into the water outside of the boat as if it has some kind of consequence or meaning. So it doesn't have any meaning. The parents of Chunk... Mm. have a pizza ready for him which in and of itself is just sort of part of the movie's humor but it makes you realize that these parents the way they think of their son is that they needed to carry around a pizza to draw him out of wherever he was hiding now these are the more expected cartoon tropes of the movie yelling despite being in fear of someone having a gun mm -hmm. uh someone grips your cheeks and it makes your tongue stick out mike is uh hiding from sloth and one of the fratelli brothers that's sean astin's character mm -hmm. and there's a random mouse trap that just snaps on him so it's like "Ooh, i have to be quiet but the mouse trap got me and data has a device that is teeth attached to a spring so when he falls down a hole the teeth shoot up and grab like a grappling hook and mm. lower him safely to the ground but here's the thing he made him out of the type of teeth that chatter they have no reason to grip anything uh sloth found a pirate hat and climbed up to the top of a pirate ship without being noticed by anybody and when he rips his shirt it's a superman logo and they play the john williams superman theme when he comes to their rescue okay i'm sure that that happened in the movie that happened so all of this led me to an idea that would help structure a remake if they were of this movie. Copperpot is the guy who started making his way down to the treasure and was the last person seen alive trying to pursue it. Okay. They find his body. If they didn't, if Copperpot was alive, mm -hmm. but because of making his way through ended up trapped with the boat because when they do they go through a water slide and slide out into you know into the area with all of the with the, with the ship and the treasure and all that okay and this this ship has something already rigged on it by the pirates to make the wall fall out in the cave near them so that the ship goes mm -hmm. if copperpot had built this contraption but as one human being wasn't able to operate it, mm -hmm. then when multiple people show up and rescue him, they'd have a reason to to be able to get out. And you'd have another adult along with Sloth to turn against the adult bad guys. So you wouldn't have to have them point guns at him and decide just not to shoot their guns and throw them away and pick up old swords just because it's a kid's movie. You know? Okay. So that would be the, the core difference that I would structure like a remake around. But... All of this is really most of everything that I have to say about it. The Goonies is a movie that everybody really likes growing up as kids, if they like it. And I can see the emotional performances of, like, Sean Astin and Corey Feldman feel earned. Well, that's... That's qualifier. Yeah, subjective. Um, I was going to say a more genuine 
Uh, like, they don't seem like they're cartoon movies, okay. you know? And so uh, the characters, the way that they interact, feel like relationships that are supposed to reflect this reality. Okay. And there is something about just, like, getting dusty and dirty and covered in cobweb cobwebs and then going into a well and the waterfall parts and you make your way through a pirate cave and you find the treasure and you splash down a water slide out into a ship on the water and and and, and potentially swashbuckle even though it never happens in the movie and um <clears throat> try and make your way out and you know this it's this big adventure that everyone goes on with secrets and maps mm. and pirates and good guys and bad guys and all this kind of stuff I'm not, I'm not gonna lie this sounds a lot like an indiana jones movie for that like with with kids in the place of jones it does if indiana jones never had any conflict with anyone hmm okay there is just and then no and i mean no outward conflict yeah. the the conflict is all centered around the the barriers to us getting what we want are mounting. There are bad guys after us now. We okay. know they're bad because we've seen that they've killed a body. Okay? And we've seen that they broke out of jail. Mm-hmm. You, we, we've seen that we've gone further and further underneath, but here we are at a well that we could possibly climb out of. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've gotten away from them. We want to get to the police. And, and it's about the one character's commitment to wanting to find this treasure that could potentially give them something that could save their houses. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like... Do we stop yet? Do we stop yet? Do we stop yet? The whole way through the movie. It never becomes, now we have to fight back against the villains. It never becomes, now we have to save the girls. It never becomes, wholly any other kind of conflict. Even at the end, when they are physically confronted by the villains. Mm -hmm. Again, they just kind of like jump in the water, don't jump in the water. Some characters stand in front of other characters. So... It's just kind of like being on a ride. Mm. You're going through, and if you were on the ride and you were like, I want to get off, but the ride told you no, and you keep going through, <laughs> and you drop down a hill, and the water splashes in your face, and all this happens, you know, it's even more so than the characters, even though a lot of attention is paid to the characters and their relationships. Okay. So, I'm really curious to watch the retrospective they did last year when, uh, what's his name? Josh Gad okay. uh, did retrospectives where he got the cast of a bunch of 80s movies back together. One of them was the Goonies cast. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I would like to hear him talk about it. It's just, it's a story that for one reason or another, I, I keep, I don't understand. The reason I wanted to talk about it is I don't understand why I keep wanting to watch it. The other one that I watched here, uh, that, um... Is Highlander the other one that has a water set piece? Highlander, okay. Never seen this movie again. Christopher Lambert. (laughs) Mortal Kombat. So, (laughs) we saw him play Raiden in the 95 Mortal Kombat. Saw him play one troll of a Raiden. We saw nothing. We saw nothing. We see nothing. We saw nothing. Um, (laughs) No. Uh, Christopher Lambert, uh, 500 years ago, was in Scotland when he discovered that he's one of a member of born immortals who live multiple lives across multiple countries over multiple centuries because they're immortal. Mm-hmm. And they can't have children because they're immortal. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole structure of this movie is, in modern day, characters are trying to fight each other before something happens because these immortals all know that eventually something called the quickening will happen. Okay. Where they all are going to be pulled to one place where they have to fight together until there's only one of them left and they will win an ultimate prize. Mm. 
And at the end of this movie, the prize is described as sort of knowing the dreams and hopes and seeing, like, every... the the Something magic about all living beings on Earth. Okay. So, it starts with... A character in 1980s, the, the, like the generally the year it was made would have been present day, um, fighting him until he beheads him. You have to behead one of the immortals in order to kill them. Mm-hmm. And every time you do, their life essence and their power kind of transfers to you. So this body is left, so the police are like, who killed this person? And they start looking at Christopher Lambert. And it was at a wrestling match. They goes into a parking garage or whatever. And so you begin to flashback and you see his whole life that led him there over multiple episodes. Sean Connery was mm-hmm. the mentor who told him what he was. Mm-hmm. Who was also an immortal. Who helped him fight this guy, Kurrigan. Mm-hmm. Kurrigan, who's played by Mr. Krabs. The voice actor for Mr. Krabs. Alright, Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown. Is um, killing other immortals early. Mm-hmm. So that by the time the quickening happens, he'll have an advantage. Does that sound like any movie you've seen recently? Mortal gonna Kombat. Be, it's going to be a big tournament. It's going to be. It's and the a, whole movie takes place before the tournament where the bad guys try and cheat and get ahead. It's Mortal Kombat. It's just Mortal Kombat. And Connor McCloud is who Christopher Lambert plays. He's alive in all these different periods of life. And now Kurrigan is back in his circles looking for him. Mm-hmm. And there's only the two of them left. Okay. After all these centuries. And so the big fight is to fight him. And, and that was... The the stuff that stuck out primarily to me is there's hand-drawn animation for special effects towards the end of the movie hmm. that usually in the 80s you would expect to see, like, lightning kind of the way that the original lightning looks in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Uh, you know, instead it's, it's hand-drawn animation. Uh, canon films. You, you know, if you watch other media regularly, listener, uh, the reputation that canon films has. So you have, again... The, the water set piece that I particularly am talking about is is more in the um, less conflict-oriented areas of the story. Um, you know, it's it's raining in some scenes. The Connor McCloud learns he's immortal while being forced to drown because he can't swim in a pool, but he can't drown because he's immortal. So mm-hmm. he's, you know, like, awakened to the experiences. He's running along a beach with uh, Sean Connery at one point when mm-hmm. they realize, you know, like, they're happy in their powers that they have and whatnot. And, uh, so, that along with the sort of Adventures of Robin Hood, sort of, there's a escalating set of stairs, and uh, Sean Connery and Clancy Brown are broadsword fighting their way through it, while entire areas of brick wall are exploding off of the wall around them, and, mm. like, it's sort of this high-stakes, life-and-death, larger-than-life story of like of ultimate good and ultimate evil and there can be only one and mm-hmm. then you have the queen music yeah okay great oh no <laughs> no but like you know if i were this the 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 reason why i wanted to watch this movie is because i can do this okay you know normally the 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 trailer voice guy is like very extra is like always talking about high stakes like the whole world is oh. changing it's like right. no actually your situation is changing like i get it in marvel there's going to be more superheroes now that doesn't mean the whole world is changing okay like the, the i i just mean literally in order to describe this movie you know for centuries immortals have been battling to the death only one can live mm. so 
they live over hundreds of years developing passions and seeing them die and trying to combat one another and trying to run across countries and trying to you know like it's it's an adventure over time and space and mm-hmm. everything and everyone from the highest highs to the lowest lows and the most wildly dramatic sense possible mm. you know it's 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 kind of the extreme of that but then you have you have such a limited budget to do it so you have characters ask Christopher Lambert where are you from because of his accent he just mm. goes lots of places and it's like true i guess <laughs> He's French, though. <laughs> so they intentionally made him French at one point, at least. Um, okay. Closer to modern day, so that, you know, it's more of a thing. Okay. But, like, uh, Sean Connery's character, he's speaking Scottish. He's mm. never been Scottish. Like, like he's he's speaking with a Scottish accent. His character's never been Scottish, but he's been Egyptian, Spanish. Mm. Like, and he dresses in this way. And it's, and, you know, he, there's also decapitations in the movie. Okay. You know, the violence is consequential. Yeah. So part part of me is interested in Highlander right now just because, you know, oh, this is this is the story of the new Mortal Kombat movie, but mostly I, I I'm interested in it because going out shooting on location among the mountains. There is a shot that's clearly done on a helicopter where Sean Connery and Christopher Lambert practice sword fighting mm-hmm. on the side of a mountain. I have no idea how they got them there. The camera is pulled far away. There are multiple shots of the camera going around. They are fighting as slow as possible for a training, but also because who's going to get to you? Who's going to fix this? How are you going to replace your sword? Mm. And the scene ends with Connor McCloud uh, sweeping his mentor's sword away off the cliff into the distance. And it's just like... That's your sword. He gives you that sword later in the movie. I don't know. But anyways, um, you know, it's so... Everything about it is so heightened and and dramatic and whatnot. And and yet they, they put so much effort into some things. And they couldn't put as much effort into other things. And I can understand that. But I don't know. It's just curious to me how this concept is and it delivers with like a sense of old school. Mm-hmm. And like modern like in the 80s and like yeah yeah okay all right so this movie i found today watched today uh on the criterion channel it's called uh it's called death dream Uh, first thing that i see for the opening title it has an alternate title called uh death by night like think day night night oh sorry it's called dead of night Dead of Night. Dead of Night, sorry. So like the Death Dream or Dead of Night? Death Dream or um, a Dead of Night, two alternate titles. And so the, the, the movie itself is, is, is about this this uh, kid who died in Vietnam. Uh, his parents get told about it, and one night he comes home after his supposed death. Uh, and while he's there, he starts acting like very strange, like kind of distant, very different from his uh, normal self. I wasn't sure what I was watching at first. I, I wasn't. I, I, at first, I thought I was watching something akin to, say, uh, um, Pet Cemetery, where you have a, a kid who who died comes comes back from 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 the grave, and now he's just more aggressive. He's changed. The thing that drew it to me is that the this is a '70s horror movie. Came out '74. The gore effects were done by Tom Savini. That's the first thing that drew me to it. Mm. 
But uh, what's going on is the son has been risen from the dead. When he goes to the doctor to kill him, you learn that he has no heartbeat. He has no, no pulse. Craving for blood. What this is is a zombie movie. Straight up zombie movie. Time. So he's dead. He's undead. He comes yes. back. But and vampires are dead and undead and come back. They are undead. Um, this is where Tom Savini comes in because the makeup effects that he uses is directly... The, it's, it's the same technique he uses in Dawn of the Dead. So the person, like, at, so as the movie go, goes on, his uh, flesh is starting to rot off. His uh, eyes are, 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 are becoming more and more uh, jaundice. And, like, it's, it's, it's just... Well, we talked about this. Mm-hmm. Tom Savini talked about this in the documentary that we saw. Okay. That his time in Vietnam yeah. is the reason why he knows... A part, a part of what he believes is the reason he was able to create realistic body horror. Yeah. Is because he's seen horrific things happen to soldiers. Yes. So it makes sense, based on him saying that, like, what you're talking about. But but I, I, I have a reservation. Like, it feels like they were trying to avoid an association with another type of monster. Uh... I think zombie is the closest thing, and the other reason why I'm going going to zombie at this point uh, mm-hmm. is how people change after they 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 come back from 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 war. It's almost like they are so already, representative of that. Yeah, okay. it, it, it's kind of like they're they're dead inside. And I think Tom Savini in the documentary we saw about him kind of talked about this, like how how he lost a bit of his humanity and then kind of left it back in Vietnam, and it took a long time for him to like regain that. And I, th- I think this this is really, really that might be him speaking to that. Though. Yes. Okay. Vietnam is such a complicated, particular war because yeah. it was it was so socially divided in America. Mm-hmm. You basically you had the hero treatment of of soldiers pre Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Then you had basically americans rejecting them yeah when they came back and so you like you had to go see and witness and be part of horrible things and come back and be attacked for it verbally mm-hmm. you know so the, the, it's a very on edge sort of thing so yeah. vietnam is very stable like i don't know i kind of feel like there's an ironic duality to what you said okay uh that soldiers the soldiers seem kind of dead inside that's kind of the metaphor like the zombie comes back he's dead inside but he's like alive and whatnot mm-hmm. when i i I would ironically say there's something more primally alive about someone who is who is constantly on edge. The idea of post-traumatic stress disorder that your heart leaps to a moment of life and death to preserve your own life fighting. Okay. You know, so to, to kind of, like, put that... Yeah. You know, like, the person is dead and they are, like, eating away at life. Like, it's it's a, it's a different approach. Yeah. Than I, than I would expect. So, I I, I don't know. It has my attention, but it, it it it's but it it has all those elements that I mentioned before, where it's very slow paced. You have this sense of paranoia, like you don't know what he's going to do, you don't know who he is, who who's who who's the same person. Not entirely sure what's wrong. Yeah, there or are, what's going to happen next. Yeah, a lot of snap zooms I noticed throughout the, the this 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 movie. And I would I would feel comfortable pushing an argument that snap zooms are a staple of the seventies. Yeah, yeah, and and. It's kind of like their jump scare. Yeah, they... You know, like, we know that when the uh, sound drowns out of a movie that you're going to get jump, uh, scare. jump scare. Yeah. Whereas in the 70s, I feel like audiences would learn that if a character widens their eyes or looks like they're going to react to something, the next shot is going to be a snap zoom <laughs> to the thing that's scaring yeah. them. And you get a lot of that in this movie as well. They're like, you get snap zooms to, like, the, the sun sitting there and... and I, I will say, like, 
one of the things that stuck out to me was the way that that the son kind of acted in the house. Uh, he stayed isolated in in his room, uh, didn't really talk to anyone, and all he did was kind of just rock back and forth. When mm-hmm. someone would address him, he would speak very curtly, very short, and didn't get into a lot of specifics. He's just in his own world. So it's kind of like at first, maybe this person is just damaged by war. Yeah. Psychologically. So that that's like one 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 of the running themes mm-hmm. throughout this entire movie is 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 is, is Can uh, I, the let effect me, of let war. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let me ask you this though. Is there a possibility that his it, character is just driving towards this carnage and bloodlust out of well, it and it reflects zombie behavior, but just psychologically he believes I should have died then? And so he claws his way back into a grave and whatnot. Is there anything where it crosses the realm where someone shot a gun at him and he's alive? Yep. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Uh, like, like straight through the chest and stuff. And there, 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 there's another moment in when he's in the car with his girlfriend that that that, that he left behind, and he just turns, and the blood just starts to burst and leak down his head, and mm. it's just yummy. Yes. So, like, my, I, I, my... ah, damn it. <laughs> yummy. Yummy. That's yummy a blood. It is. I. <laughs> I guess I didn't say whether or not I liked it or not. I haven't seen it, so I can't say whether yeah. I liked it or not. But whatever. Yeah. And it's the first time I think you see an intelligent zombie in anything else. Since like people consider this a, a zombie, it's it's a guy who is like forethought. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan going forward whenever he does choose to kill someone. It's it's hard to say anything is the first of zombies. When zombies... You, you're talking about Romero zombies. Yeah, the first one... Remember, that... zombies existed for a long time before that. Yeah, like 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 voodoo zombies though, but like like undead. But, who, so I'm who saying like flesh. Yeah. so they could take action and they could do things, you know, for decades mm. because they're being commanded to do so by somebody right. else. You know, okay. like you, so nev- this, you never. You never. zombie could be like like a uh, yeah uh, yeah I get it, but yeah, like that's but a- it is worth noting. Like it would be worth exploring. I, to me, when you're watching something, there's always sort of kind of like the uncanny valley. There's an effect where you can feel when something was an original idea or not. Yeah, or if it's like kind of familiar yeah you know if you've heard a quote a thousand times and you finally watch the movie with it it originates from there's a certain kind of spark to it yeah um so if it felt like that cool so that's about i think that's all i gotta say on on this like i i I, i'd probably go back to this if i i just like i don't know why Mm. i like can't say that either nope The Mask of Zorro. Mm. I watched. You watched it the lad that time. I had not watched it that time. I finally watched it, and oh my goodness! So, all right, I'm just gonna pick up kind of where we were on that conversation. We talked about uh, the amount of effort that they went into doing things practically. Yes. First thing that I noticed right off the bat when he walks up and he cuts a Z into frame in the sort of hero pose shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are jump cut. There are frames cut out at the beginning of each swipe so that it looks quicker and, and snappier. Oh. Um, I had never noticed that before. It's that kind of thing where I'm starting to get nervous about some movies. Uh, mm. Where, like, I, I kind of don't want to upgrade Adventures of Robin Hood to Blu-ray because I don't want to see the seams. Mm. Some movies I want to see the seams because I'm interested in the filmmaking. Some movies I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, so continuing on through the movie... Something occurred to me about Patrick Willems and about the conversation that we had. And that is that Zorro is Batman. Yeah. 
a privileged character <laughs> who is believable as the Wayne playboy. That's how he has a secret identity. Yeah. So we talked about how the movie was essentially whitewashed. And don't get me wrong, it, it kind of was. Kind of. But Spain is European. Welsh is European. It's a stretch to say those two are similar. It's it's The casting choice is definitely taking something that is one culture and allowing a more Anglo culture to represent them. So that is pretty much inherently whitewashing. But... Antonio Banderas is is Spanish. Yes. Zorro is not Mexican. Don Diego uh-huh. de la Vega mm-hmm. is Spanish. He is one of the Oh. He is one of the most privileged families who owned land in California and Mexico. Okay. He is from he went to university in Spain. Okay. You know, he he the and the opening of the one of the one of the very early movies of Zorro, okay, is him riding a boat back to California for the first time from Spain. Like he 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 is Spanish. Okay. What they've done here with the Mask of Zorro is they have passed the legacy on to a character that is Mexican, played by someone who is Spanish. Okay. In Spanish-occupied Mexico, where it would make sense that there would be Spanish Mexicans. Okay. So I would argue that Antonio Banderas is not at all whitewashing the character. All right. He is he is cast exactly, you know, and now he is pretending to have been Mexican, but we honestly don't know that the character was born Mexican. He mm-hmm. just seems impoverished, right. but they're not with their parents at first. So everything is the lines are blurred. They're they're vague. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. So, and then, you know, Don Diego de la Vega, his wife, uh, is Latina, but we don't know, you know, what kind of Latina. Mm-hmm. And we just know that another Spanish, the, the, the villain, the, you know, the, yeah, like, Count, yeah, uh, Rafael. Has, has been a, a rival, a love interest, like, for however long. Mm-hmm. So it's like, did they just meet this Mexican woman, or is she also Spanish and they were both courting her? Okay. At which point you just have a Spanish European daughter. Right. So it's not it's not as far of a stretch as it was made to seem to be. Okay. So, um and especially not for Antonio Banderas. Yeah. Uh one of the things I wanted to note, visual storytelling. The progression of Antonio Banderas' character from the squirrely haired, bearded, uh earth covered white shirt right. brawler. Mm-hmm. To having composure in the different ways that he works, yeah. gradually trimming away the scruff on the outside and clearing right. I was down. Say things. that, like he, as, as the movie goes on, he he gets cleaner and like straight laced more. When I look at it, and Antonio Banderas's character at the very beginning of the movie, after the time lapse from where they're kids, and I look at his movements when they're fighting, they're very kind of boorish and like uh, wide, very like heavy. And then part of the uh, visual growth, that as he learns more and more about sword fighting, becomes more and more competent, they become more, uh, like, fluid and uh, swift. And so, and then uh, the dynamic between him and Catherine Zeta-Jones, that when she meets Bruce Wayne the Playboy, <laughs> that he feels challenged to completely commit to that character to prove he can win her that way also. Mm. I feel like that romance lives on Catherine Zeta-Jones' performance. I feel like 
Antonio Banderas' character, the way he seems when he ha- still has a large mustache, has put on just a random black cloth that he thinks and is like yellow shirted. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to court her. Mm-hmm. He's like, be careful, there are dangerous men about. And like, he's, he's doing a thing. I feel like if you, if she had performed it as scared, mm-hmm. I feel like it would make sense. But she didn't. She performs it as shoulders forward, fully welcoming body language, <laughs> eyes as wide as possible, a smirk touching the side of her face, watching him climb a set of stairs, and she is immediately, like, turned on to the 11th degree. Yeah. Despite him not being close to what he, you know, is supposed to be by the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, the, Anthony Hopkins, I, I texted this to you, mm-hmm. uh... One of the, one of the great moments of his acting career that proves <laughs> you know like well I guess great moments he's a great actor so I, I don't mind being buzzed for that mm-hmm. uh, is having to look Antonio Banderas dead ass in the eye and say you lack charm in any variation what he actually says is like uh, you you have these gifts but there's one gift that you lack and he's like what is that and he says charm, charm. and and having to tell Antonio Banderas he's not charming. <laughs> Because his character has to be, quote-unquote, likable. Yeah. Yes? And so his character is putting on a performance, like, every time he musters things up to try to to fight back with Antonio Banderas, mm-hmm. every way that he tries to be a scrappy brawler, the way that he tries to woo Catherine Zeta-Jones, right. are all aimed at entertaining the audience through him right. being charming. And then, the in the context of the story, though... The characters don't see the beats that way. The the audience does. Um, there are some fights where the characters seem to be flinging their arms at one another with an intent to harm one another. But there's a key point in this training that they talk about um, attacking out of anger is a, not a good thing. Right? That's that's what the, is stated by Anthony Hopkins. They, they do one, two, three. He teaches them forms and he teaches them different things. And... Yeah, gradually, one of the, one of the things that I, I see, and, and I pointed this one out specifically, there is, in a single shot, no less than seven actors on screen, including Antonio, Bandera, Antonio Banderas. Mm-hmm. Where Antonio Banderas has looped the blades of multiple other people into one pile. And nobody knows where to move. And it's sort of that, what would be that trope of one person attacking at once. Mm -hmm. But everyone has attacked at once. And all of the stunt actors who are against him and Antonio Banderas have to move together. (laughs) Where they're playing chicken as to who's going to pull their blade and who's going to do what. In a wide shot around the room. And for everyone to have to be on board with what's going on and move in unison at the same time, mm-hmm. it takes so much more effort than I think we previously talked about. And just, just the, the front flipping and the, you know, the stunt actor's work when he's riding a horse, which by the way, that scene can be entirely lifted from the movie with no consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the horse chase, oh, but, yeah. um, ex- the, except, the consequence would be you would not have shots where a character flips himself backwards and forwards on the way he, method by which he's riding the horse mm. or stands on two horses at once and rides up to meet the the guy in the front. You know, like, there's so many things where clearly this whole sequence was just built around what can someone do? Yeah. 
It's like, can you yeah. ride two horses at once? Yes. Can you ride a horse backwards? Yes. Can you ride the underside of a horse? No. Okay. Well, don't put that one in. You know, <laughs> like it. Can you jump from one horse to another? Yes. Can you jump over an obstacle when you're riding a horse? Yes. Can you? You know, like it's it's check 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 check. You know, like mm-hmm. until it's and then when it's done, it's like okay. So yeah. we know we need X number of people so that he can do this number of stunts. When he's done the last stunt, the last person is no longer an obstacle. And yeah. then the scene is over. Um, it feels like it's so constructed around that. Around, like, just, like, what are we going to do stunt-wise? But the thing is, that's Steven Spielberg once said this about Jaws. That at a certain point in the movie, if your audience believes the story you're telling and is along for the ride you gradually earn permission from the audience to do more and more wild things. So at the very end, you can do something like shoot a helium tank that would never explode and it can blow up a shark and everyone will just react and cheer and believe you, mm-hmm. even though that makes no sense and it would never blow up. Yeah. Because you they've, they're on board with the story till this point. Um, I think that's maybe the effect of what's happening in this movie, where after a certain point, you want to see the character display improvement in his physical prowess and technique and his ability to be this character Zoro. Right. And so you're gradually having set pieces that just prove more and more of him being able to be the romanticized idea of that character. The way that Antonio Banderas plays two sides. He plays all three parts of Batman, by the way. He plays Playboy Antonio ben- Playboy Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. Revenge-based sinister Bruce Wayne, mm-hmm. and he plays Batman. But Batman is Zorro, so it's more of a charm kind of thing. Yeah. Like, it's more of a smiling, winking, not charm, but smiling, winking kind of flourish kind of theatricality than it is a fear-based theatricality. But there's a point in the movie, mm-hmm. deliberately, where the writer, director, and actor all seem to be on the same page, where he just rips off the mask and is no longer wearing it. When he's facing down... The man who killed his brother. Yeah. And from that point forward, Antonio Banderas' performance of anger and revenge, he slips backwards in the way that he's fighting briefly to earlier in the movie. Hmm. He, he attacks a little more wildly. But he uses some of the acrobatics and the skills that he's learned at the same time. So it's sort of the most unique to himself character not trying to be anything else that he gets. Yeah. And... The Highlander does the highs and lows and the romanticized thing, but the Mask of Zorro is the one that I would watch if I wanted to get that out of something any day over Highlander. But I guess I am saying, like, that I would prefer one over the other. I already got buzzed, like, four times for the Mask of Zorro before, so this is ridiculous. But um, the last movie that I watched is Sherlock Holmes 2009, which is... The American Hollywood Sherlock Holmes. Yep. Starring Robert Downey Jr. Big Jude budget Law. blockbuster feature. The attempt to turn Sherlock Holmes into an action hero. And so audiences, socially at least, reacted that way when it was coming out. It's not until later that it's generally gained a reputation beyond the sort of initial gut reaction of, well, he's not wearing the deerstalker, he doesn't have the iconic pipe, and he's trying to do martial arts. So they're trying to Hollywood him up, and people have started to kind of say, like, well, hey, where's Sherlock Holmes 3? Like, Guy Ritchie's one and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Guy Ritchie's stamp is so hard all over this that it, it, it's, oh, damn. it's the reason why I'm so confused about what happened with the live-action remake of Aladdin. 
Because yeah. he's already proved that he can take a big budget from a heavy studio, and it's still entirely uniquely mm-hmm. his style of movie. So, you know, Guy Ritchie is long socking two smoking barrels, Snatch, um, The Gentleman came out recently. Uh, you know, and, and so you get a lot of the same aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't get the same type of characters, but even then you do kind of get the same type of characters who are in prison. They're just kind of on the fringes. You focus on the core characters of, you know, uh, Sherlock, Dr. Watson, uh, Irene Adler, Moriarty. Mm. You know, like, you, you focus on the staples of who are core to it. But at the same time, they make slightly more use out of Sherlock's homeless network. Mm-hmm. Which is... More to the underground of something like Snatch, uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and like those kind of movies. So it's a perspective that's a lot more on Sherlock as a person who does not fit in with high society. Mm -hmm. Sherlock is normally a and a depiction of someone who's very well mannered, yeah, very composed. He's also very antisocial for them, like if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it's 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 not. It, some depictions of him are, I think, increasingly so over time. Mostly overhauled because this came out just a little bit after the BBC Sherlock came out, and those were both very heavy on the antisocial yeah. side of things. Uh, but if you think about it, he's running a practice on his own individually, so he has to invite people into his house all the time and take cases and things like that. Yeah. Okay. Um. But this this dynamic, the choice to set this towards the twilight of the years that they've been working together. Yeah. So that the characters already have a history and are already him and Jude Law are so playing the thing so much like they're basically splitting up. Yeah. And that the story involves a time where Sherlock tries to use his activities to call out his fiance as someone who is trying to pull one over on him and steal his money. Yeah. You know, it's like <laughs> I wouldn't think to write that in a script about Sherlock Holmes, but the other thing is incorporating action into the movie. It yes. does have a final physical showdown where there's basically a sword fight even though one is just a cane. Between Mark Strong and and Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. um, the the story focusing so hard on the occult, um, yeah. Lord Blackwell being the main villain and whatnot, mm-hmm. uh, these are all kind of unique to this depiction of it. They're things that you you can get hints of out of other depictions of Sherlock Holmes, but they are unique to this one. Okay, uh, Robert Downey Jr. being cast as Sherlock Holmes just, uh, rather than a British actor. Imagine you had to be the most iconic British figure of ever. Uh, Would you feel comfortable? Oh no, heck no. So, I I've I watched behind the scenes where Robert Downey Jr. talks about working with his dialect coach to get these things correct, and mm-hmm. there are little changes, differences to his accent to reflect a character that's not just 100% English because he spends his time around like different axes around England different levels of like Cockney and, and other variations and so mm-hmm. um, he had to work a lot with a dialect couch and 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 uh, body language like composure kind of thing and yet there are still so many ticks to the character like not maintaining eye contact with anyone and staring towards the ceiling while he's talking about someone uh, how he chooses to to look and things that Robert Downey Jr. chooses to do that like 
are all his decision. Yeah. And so he kind of took on a confident approach to doing this. And, um, you know, there, that's, that's just the way he did it. Um, fun fact. Fun facts. If you own the DVD or Blu-ray of Sherlock Holmes that came out in 2010, just after it was released at the end of 2009, Mm -hmm. you own the only copies of the movie that have Moriarty's original uncredited voice actor. After 2011, after they had cast uh, Jared Harris as Moriarty, Mm. he redubbed the first movie. It's such a tiny detail, Mm -hmm. but when you combine that, like, the um, color tone shifts and and things like that, like, it's... There's significant differences between... More and more, I'm noticing that 4K releases, people are just making significant changes. It's almost like they they feel like they can't sell it on the merit of improvement from Blu-ray to 4K. Yeah. So they're making changes to the movie to be like, buy this alternate version. Okay. Um, and, and now, don't get me wrong, they changed that on the Blu-ray as well. So if you bought it after the first wave of Blu-rays came out... You have a Jared Harris version. Mm. Um, and I have no idea who the original actor was who was voicing him. But anyways. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about with this movie. With the second Sherlock Holmes movie, mm. they decided to go with like a 2.3 something aspect ratio that is typical widescreen what you see in a movie theater. Yeah. With this one, it's 1.8 something. It's it's 16 by 9. Okay. And as particularly in high definition... Mm. The details of the landscapes are designed for 16 by 9. So when you see London from far away, Mm -hmm. you see all of London from far away, all the little shop windows, all this kind of thing. And the significance of that to this movie is what you end up finding out is that the occult aspect of the story is five points, five heads, ox, eagle, man, lion. Yeah. You know, like there's a pentagram around where these different crimes have been and parliament is where they need to go. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing when you're seeing these wide establishing shots of where they are in the city is partially a map of where the characters are functioning in this way. To me, there's, there's more of a grip on the world they're living in. Okay. Rather than it just being like, we could pay for a few sets and things like that. And we use establishing shots to make things seem bigger than they are. Um, and then, for example, they do that wide shot of Sherlock when he jumps out the window of multiple story building into the river. Yeah. Um, you know, this is this is a full screen, very detailed side of a very intricately built building that he dives out of. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the action and the sense of adventure in the movie. Okay. Yeah, it was like... <laughs> a little, little, little bit. And the little, little, little bit is, after all these years... What felt to me like after all these years, because the way the characters talk about their past, the way that the story, uh, this is my 60 seconds, uh, calls on uh, things from their past, like uh, Watson's gambling addiction and uh, Sherlock's uh, history with Irene Adler and him holding pictures and things like that. Mm-hmm. like Set design, little pieces, they, they do more than just talk about that they have history together. Mm-hmm. And yet they still seem so surprised by what one another is doing. Mm-hmm. Like... Sherlock says just the right thing to make Watson not go home and instead stay with him to explore the place where they have to fight Dredger and the two other people. Okay. You know, he's like, you have me for ten minutes. And then right when they're about to start fighting Dredger and the two people, he's, he's like, do you want meat or potatoes? And his response is, my ten minutes are up. They, they, they have this history where 
through action, mm-hmm. what they show is that Watson is constantly questioning and curious about Sherlock, but is immediately snap judgment ready to act on what Sherlock wants him to do. Okay. As if he had the experience of knowing what he was going to have to do with him for years. So, a giant ship gets unlocked and is going down a harbor, and Watson runs in, immediately grabs him and pulls him down. Or no, flip side. Who pulls who down? I don't remember. I don't remember. Um, But still, one or the other of them is immediately like, I'm ready to react immediately because this is what we do. Mm. Even though... How many ships have they accidentally let loose into a harbor just by, you know, fighting a dude? Yeah. It, yeah. And that carries on throughout the movie. I mean, the very beginning, when you're first introduced to them, you have the dynamic. You introduce <coughs> that Lestrade waiting to line his men up. They're both teasing the police force for being less effective than they are. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> it's just one shot. That's borderline choreographed. Mm. Where he hands him his hat, he flips on his hat, they both look from each other out onto the scene that they're looking on. And they use this as like the freeze frame pose to show the title in the end credits. Mm -hmm. And just because it's so like, I'm here, I've checked in on you. You, give me an update. I've given you an update. We both know the information we have. We both know why we're here. Boom, let's get ready to go. It's so practiced Mm -hmm. that it's like they have history. And... So the relationship of the characters is shown so much more through action than it is through them sharing intimate details with one another. The anger and refusal to follow Sherlock and then the inevitably following Sherlock down something and then getting arrested for it. And then him trying to split off and have his own life and Sherlock just being really displeased with that. It's such a different take on their relationship. And yet all of this... So you take something iconic... You put a completely unique stamp and spin on it, mm-hmm. but you make it fill out and check off all of the boxes for a summer blockbuster. And all of a sudden you have a fresh and new of something that is tested time and time again. So to me, I'm always going to want to watch this version of Sherlock Holmes. Okay. So last movie I watched this week was Hellraiser. It's my first time watching it. Written and directed by Clive Barker. Uh, first thing that I do want who to talk about. Who wrote the book, Hellraiser. Who wrote the book. The first thing I want to talk about with, with this movie is the gore effects. The gore effects for me are legitimately nauseating. And um, I, I can so, qualify this too. Like, the first time you, you see this uh, creature, uh, he's literally springing from, from, from the ground from, from, from Gru. You get a full frontal view of his brain as it's forming, the rib cage coming out with nothing around it, and it's just, and, and even as he gets more and more complete, you get to see like the veins going across his skin and you get, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's very, so it is so much detail of anatomy, but it's very it. visceral. It very much reminds you what is inside your skin. Yes. And it makes you think of what's inside your skin. And the fact that the way that brain is pumping and moving is the way your brain uh, is pumping and moving. And yeah. what your insides are doing while you're sitting there idly watching a movie. I 100% it's, it's, Oh my, it, it's, it's just... And I, the, 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 this creature design, which is basically a human without skin. For uh, this this uncle. And I, I think you mentioned before that he's kind of a murderer, but I didn't get that impression, I guess. Because, like, the, the guy, I don't know how to describe the uncle. I don't remember the uncle. Uh, the, uh, Frank, the guy who, who's coming back to life? Oh, yeah. 
the I mean, person, how did he die? He, he, he opened the box and then chains came out and, like, literally ripped him apart. That's, that's the first scene of the movie. Okay. And so the progression of the movie, which you expect to be Pinhead and everything iconic that's come out of the series so far. Yeah. He's actually... Yeah, no, like... The, him trying to regrow while he sends someone to yeah. go do things for him. Right. Now, that's kind of the, the flip that I wasn't expecting with this movie. Uh, when the daughter was introduced, I was expecting to follow her throughout most of the movie, but she's really more of a side character than anything else. Mm. The main focus of this movie is is on Frank and the the adulterous wife that, that he has a relationship with. It's, like, yeah. it's, it's, it's very clear in the first one of these films... That someone's writing from an idea. Yeah. The story unfolds around the idea. Yeah. And then you take that in retrospect and you build on it to try to make sequels and things like that. The the the, the partner that uh, Frank has throughout the movie, she kind of falls into her role. Uh, it's, just, it, 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 it's revealed that she has this kind of past relationship with uh, with uh, Frank. And then when he's coming back to life, she it, it doesn't take long for her to agree to, to like do what he wants in, in, in order to get back, which is bring him victims so he can feed on on the, on on their blood to kind of get Yeah, I thought he yeah. They're killing people. Yeah, straight up. Uh so he is a murderer. He he's convincing her to murder people. She just either, Okay, so Charles Manson's not guilty. Okay, uh, Curtis. Either he's only a murderer after he's trying to get back to life. Doesn't make him any be, any less of a bad guy. I'm just saying. Facts uh, are facts. He didn't technically do anything. I, I'm like I, she reacts kind of how I would expect her to react with the first one. Like, she's kind of shaken up. She can't believe what she's done. And after that, it's kind of like she's been opened up and mm. is now just relentless throughout the entirety of, of the movie. The, like, her her only uh, standpoint at first is she doesn't want her husband to die. And then after a point, she just doesn't care anymore. Mm. Sends him to die as well. Mm, you see her get more and more jaded. Yeah. Mm. More and more, like, under under the control of uh, Frank and like like that, that's the thing that I kind of want to that's the thing that I kind of want to talk about the most is is like the relationship between Frank and the wife it's a toxic relationship and and it's it's literally about how a relationship like this is can 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 lead to a terrible situation and the whole movie is framed around them and how they affect everyone else around them and the title hellraiser refers to the one who raises hell yeah and so Hellraiser is not Pinhead. No. Those are the Cenobites. I, I thought Pinhead would, would play a much, much bigger role in this. And not really. He has three or four lines throughout the entire movie. Very little. Uh, I will say, like, the, 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 the Cenobites do stand out. Like, they, it's, it's one well, of... of course, especially if you didn't know what to expect when you're going into the movie. Yeah. Clyde Barker's creature designs, they are very... I don't know how to say this. I, I just I, I like unique? the character. Unique is a good way to say it. Like you don't see any characters creature designs like them. I I know what I would want to say about the character designs. You may be able to say it better than than I can because like they're I, because they seem based on a particularly reveled sin. Like I, you feel like you can get a sense of story out of them. You feel like you know how. You, I you feel, feel like, like if someone told you the story of why they look the way they yeah. look, you would not be surprised. Yeah, yeah I feel like I, I get a sense <clears throat> of character just from their design right. alone. Uh, that I think that's a good way to say it. And not not kind of like 13 ghosts, they kind of present 13 ghosts to you who all have different histories and backstories. Mm-hmm. That's not entirely what I mean. I mean like Pinhead, for example. When you finally see his full design and you see how he was, you imagine that he was masochistic. 
you, you have the pins drilling into him. You have the leather straps. You have the associations with BDSM. Yeah. You have all this kind of stuff. So you feel like if someone told you that if he was a human in life, mm-hmm. that this element was a big part of his life, you'd be like, that makes sense. There's this character that's like almost covered in piercings and... Like one of the 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 design aspects that sticks out is like her trachea is kind of split open. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> it almost kind of looks like a vagina. Oddly enough, I don't know. Oh yeah. Why. Oh yeah. <laughs> so everything is pseudosexual. Yeah, uh, throughout the entire yeah. And I I want to know more about these characters and this and I didn't get that from this movie. So like if I do go to watch more of these movies, which I very well might, I, I want to learn more about the, these the, the, these characters just because they're, they're yeah. So... I don't know if there's an installment that goes into why the Cenobites are the Cenobites because the second one is is more about the the girl from this one who survives mm. goes to hell oh. and has to escape. Okay, did not know that and. You know, Hellraiser. That's just... just unexpected level of realism in the gore. Yes, and very imaginative creature design that feels like it tells its own stories. And yet, the story that it's 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 just it's just so not what I expect based on reputation. Yeah, I feel like everyone talks up how it wasn't Jason in the first Friday the Thirteenth movie, but it's like. Nobody yeah. talks about how the first Hellraiser is is not pinhead. not what you would expect. Yeah. I guess that does it for this episode of this this film not rated. I I am Curtis, uh, and you can follow me at Nineties uh, Gamer four hundred seven on Twitter or on Twitch at Merrick underscore Attainment. And I'm Eric. You can find me at High Contrast FLM or at High Contrast on YouTube if it will pop up, and not that other dude that does all that music stuff. And uh, don't forget to check out uh, musiccitydrivein.com where you can find another a a a variety of podcasts other branches of the Music City Drive-In podcast. podcast network. Yep. Uh, full of talented people. And uh, thanks for watching listening to us rant about movies. <laughs>